You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty. Oh, to stimulate your thinking. You're listening. You're listening to Intellectual Erection. Intellectual, intellectual, intellectual Erection. Welcome to another episode of Intellectual Erection. I'm your host, Patrick. And today I'm speaking with sex blogger Tatiana King. Yes, a regular ass party is what I thought it was. Just drinking and getting to know each other and then next thing i know everyone's fucking in the middle of the dance floor and i'm like this is awesome (laughs) we talk about race and intersectionality in the sex positive communities we talk about sex and pleasure the importance of communication and discuss some water sports and surprise orgies this is another reminder that i'm offering my platform to amplify BIPOC voices. So if you are interested or know somebody, please get in touch with me at intellectualerection at gmail.com and I will continue to host BIPOC voices from sex educators, sex workers, or anyone generally interested in amplifying their voice on this platform. And as always, listen, subscribe, review, and most of all, enjoy. I'm sitting here today with Tatiana King. Hi, Tatiana. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm glad you're here too. Uh, Why don't you tell the listeners what it is that you do? Well, primarily I'm a sex blogger and I blog for multiple publications like Taboo. It's a modern day sexual health and mental health platform. And Swoon, it's a published relationship content channel online. And also, I am a graduate student at Widener University, getting my master's in human sexuality and social work. And I am a sex coach for the Blex app, which is an app that dedicates itself to sexual health and providing therapy for the Black community. Amazing. So we're going to talk about, I think, each of those things, because I'm interested certainly in your blog, in your academic life, in the Blex app. So the first thing that I usually ask on this podcast is an origin story. I ask this of all my guests. The first part, you can choose not to answer. It's a two-parter. So the first one is, do you remember when you were very young, the first time that you encountered sex or sexuality as a child and what that experience was like? I'm always curious to find out. It's a weird kind of psychoanalytic question, but (laughs) you can also choose to opt out if it's not something that you want to talk about. Yeah, actually it started maybe either when I was in the first or second grade. I was really young and I lived in a household where my parents, they were very upfront with me about anything. It doesn't matter if it was religion, sex, violence, TV, everything. They told me about what I needed to know at a very young age. And one of those things was sex and how it works, the birds and the bees, (laughs) reproduction, puberty, all of that. So as they told me about it, I've always been like a really chatty and gossipy person, not necessarily in a bad way, but if I learn about something, I'm very excited to tell other people. So when I was younger, instead of just being like a normal kid and playing on the playground and going through the swings like a normal little kid, (laughs) I would actually talk to my classmates about sex and ask them 
if their parents taught them about what it really means to have sex and if they knew where babies came from. And it actually surprised me because a lot of my classmates didn't know about that. And I thought it was normal for people's parents to tell them about everything. But when I heard my classmates' responses, they were like, oh yeah, doesn't a bird drop the baby off at the doorstep or doesn't a woman have the baby from her stomach? Like it just erupts from her stomach. And I'm like, no, that's not what happens. So then I told them about everything I had learned from my parents. And then eventually my teachers found out and they had a chat with me and told me to stop talking about that kind of stuff to people because they, their parents weren't comfortable with them knowing about it that early. So those were my first experiences learning about sex and sexuality when I was younger. Okay. Well, it seems like you, you were primed pretty early for, <laughs> yeah, for what you got into later on. And it, it's weird how, how people are so defensive about teaching children about sex and sexuality and turning sex in general into such a taboo. It's always struck me as odd. But on the other hand, I think part of what I appreciate about that is that it does create taboos. And taboos are really fun to explore in the king community. Oh, definitely. I I actually wonder what would happen if, if we had a world of sex positivity, then would we have less taboos to work with in kink? I would think so. Because even now, most people's understanding of kink goes toward the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, which isn't necessarily the best representation of BDSM and kink, but that's what a lot of people think of because their understanding of that is mainly through the mainstream media and what movies have come out. And even now there's um, that Netflix movie, 365 DNI. It gets a little kinky in the movie, but um, yeah, I definitely think that there would be less to work with if there weren't as many taboos out there. <laughs> so we gotta, we gotta appreciate our, uh, our sometimes unhealthy upbringings around uh, uh, yeah. you know, a lack of sex education. Okay, and the second part of the origin question is how you got involved with the sex positive communities. And by this, I mean, it could be kink, BDSM, polyamory, Uh, sex education, sex work, whatever it is that you do, that you dabble in? It started after, after I graduated from UNC Greensboro, I wanted to get more into the sex positive community in general. So I reached out to people who I followed on Instagram and Twitter, specifically one of my favorite sex educators, Sarah Sloan. She's um, a Chicago-based sex educator and she's also one of the people who teaches lessons at Chicago Dungeon Rentals, and she gave me a lot of different contacts, so I reached out to many people, and I got in contact with people who were a part of sex conferences, so I did a lot of traveling and went to different conferences and asked people about the work that they do, and then eventually that's how I got more involved, and there were like a range of conferences between academic ones and more fun, kinky type of conferences that I've gone to, and all of them have been really good, but I think lately I've more so gravitated towards the more kinky and more porn expos because they just, they're amazing with how comfortable they are in their sexuality and what they do and who they are, so that's more or less how I got involved with that. Have you been to Sex Down South? 
No, I haven't, but I wanted to go this year, but since it's virtual, I don't know <laughs> going to look, but everyone says that that's one of their favorites. So I definitely have to go regardless of if it's a virtual or if they have a, an important person one at the beginning of next year. I, I desperately need to go because everyone loves that one. Well, yeah, after talking with uh, Marla Stewart, I definitely feel like I should I should check out Sex Down South. I've not had a chance to go either. So maybe because it's virtual, it might give us both the opportunity to to access it in a way that we otherwise wouldn't or couldn't. Where are you based out of? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Currently, um, currently I'm in Durham, North Carolina, visiting my parents, but I moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania recently because of my graduate studies. So mm-hmm. I wanted to move closer to Widener University. Okay, awesome. Well, hello from Toronto. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the work that you do um, in general, your blog, and your academic work. Well, with blogging, depending on what angle I'm trying to go for, usually I just think of a topic, anything that's relevant to current events or something that resonates with me, and I, or I guess write about it. Or sometimes I'll contact people in the sexuality field and I'll ask them questions. For example, one blog post that I wrote for Swoon was me talking to Dr. Ruth one day. I actually had a phone call with her. She's a really famous sex therapist, and I was just asking her questions about her books and her advice that she has for millennials these days, and she really wants us to get off of our phones and really have more communication in person and really get connected into our intimacy in person without using too many online sources and technology. But that was one of the coolest things that I had done because when I was younger, Dr. Ruth, or even when my parents were younger too, she was a big and still is a pretty big person in the sexuality field. So that kind of goes into my blogging and what I do. And then with, it kind of goes on with my academic life too, because eventually I want to become a sex therapist. And it helps being in a program that pinpoints that along with social work. So it kind of teaches us how to really thrive in therapy and in private practice, if that's what we choose to do. And also it goes into the sex coaching that I do for the Blex app, because with that, it's almost like an online community and a resource where we provide coaching for people specifically in the black community and we um in the blog i mean not the blog in the app there's this matching thing where we match people who use the app and we connect them to coaches and they can talk about anything from regular intimacy problems to relationships to their libido and their sex drive so a lot of the work that i do intertwines in a way Right, that that makes sense, and yeah. I, guess, I guess being a, I assume you're a millennial. Yeah. You know, you have to rely on precarious work and have a thousand and one jobs, because that's the the reality of trying to afford a living these days. You can't just oh, do yes. one thing, right? Tell me a little bit more about this Blex app, then. So you're saying that it's for the Black community. Is it generally anywhere, or is it just for U.S. audiences? North America? Generally, it is in U.S. and North America audiences, but it is growing. It was just launched this year, actually, but 
I think the more people who are getting into it and the more people who are hired to be coaches, it could potentially get bigger. And um, right now it's more so a community app for people to not only get to know each other and share each other's experiences, but there are also, there's a component in the app where there are blog posts and I've contributed to some of those blogs, but people can read about certain topics and experiences if they don't wish to actually get coaches, one-on-one coaching with other people. I think it's amazing because not a lot of people are aware of how race and sexuality intersect. I mean, I can't speak for everyone in the Black community, but me personally, growing up, there are certain factors that I've noticed. Like, I'm not saying that everyone feels this way, but as a younger person, I grew boobs very early and grew a, had a big butt really early in, in elementary school. And I was looked differently than my white counterparts. When people looked at me, they often attributed things to me like, quote unquote, fast. That's a, that's a word people use in the black community saying someone's fast. And that typically mean? that means just sexual or more likely to want to hook up with someone. It's basically like a word for calling someone a slut. So like so, easy, easy is, a, is another word. Yeah, or yeah. easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh, okay. And it was just different, not necessarily saying that they thought that just because I was black that I was easy, but it's some things that people subconsciously don't know that they're doing when they look at a black person differently who has a certain body type rather than another person who is non-black and they have a different body type sometimes and it kind of goes into historical aspects because when people historically looked at black people they attributed our bodies to be different more lewd and just more hypersexual and even in slavery when people did horrible things against black men. They were fixated on their penises, like they would castrate black men's penis. They would sell them and literally examine their bodies and see who was the more fit. And even some of these stereotypes play out in porn that we see like the, um, the foundation called Blacked. You know, it's basically about black men and their big penises and even the phrase big black cock that people use so a lot of these yeah (laughs) a lot of these attributes that people have towards black people it comes out even in sexuality that not everyone's aware of absolutely and i'm i'm glad you you brought this up because this is part of a growing conversation that i've been having as i've been extending my platform to bipoc voices I've brought back some episodes that I've done in the past, like one that I did with my friend Luther on black masculinity in the sex positive communities. And I talked to Marla Stewart as well when we had our conversation about this in the context of race play, because he was subjected to non-consensual race play while being a bull with a white couple. And basically, you know, he had the same sorts of sentiments, being part of the sex positive communities as a black man, even here in Toronto, he experienced black fetishism where it limited his possibility for what he wants to explore with his body, his sexuality, and the types of relationships that he wants to have with other human beings. Uh, if 
he's consistently seen as a bull, right? As somebody who must be alpha, who must have also be well endowed, which is also an unfair assumption, right? Uh, people might not understand that that's racist when you assume that just because somebody's black, they must have a, you know, a big penis. What if they don't, right? Like it's hard to live up to an expectation, even if it sounds like a positive attribute, right? So yeah, the, these aspects of, you know, what some people don't even realize is, is racism do still permeate the sex positive communities. So part of our conversation then was to try to think how the sex positive communities could be more inclusive. And I remember his suggestion, and I said this to Marla as well, was that if there were more BIPOC people and Black people specifically in the sex positive communities, then there would be a greater experience for everybody of a variety, right? You would see different Black men who are interested in, in, in different kinks, different fetishes, they have different sexualities. And at that point, it would dissolve this idea that all Black men must be stallions. So that was, that was part of his, uh, his conception. I wonder for yourself if you've given thought to the sex positive communities and what could help it become a little bit more intersectional and how to do away with some of these racist undertones that exist there. I think that the sex positive community could, I mean, I do agree with what he said. It really would do a service for us to center us in people's work especially with the conferences that I've gone to in the past, I've noticed that there aren't many that have a big black and minority presence there. A lot of these conferences, I do see mostly white people. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that, you know, white people can't show up to these spaces and show out, but it is nice when I think of sex conferences like Sex Down South, even though I haven't been there in person before, but I do notice that it has a very heavy minority presence there and not just people who are showing up, but people who are in the front lines, people who are actually organizing these events and teaching these workshops there. So I definitely think centering minorities will help the sex positive community, really giving us a voice to talk about our experiences. Absolutely. And this is what Marla Stewart was saying as well. And the reason that she began Sex Down South was exactly for this reason, was to make sex positivity more inclusive, to center Black folks because of these exact issues, the, the entire scene being dominated, as tends to happen by white people in a lot of cases, even outside the sex positive communities, right? I've been trying to, to mold this over with the Black sex educators that I've been talking with recently, just, just about the types of things that can be done because I look back at the conference that happened here in Toronto, the, the Taboo Conference, and the same thing happened. I, I went to the Taboo Conference, or it's not a conference, rather, it's a show. It's like a, as you know, it's a, it's, it's a show, not, not really a conference. It's not uh, academic. There's, there's not as many speakers. But the problem with it is that it was predominantly white consumers there and a lot of white owned businesses and king shops and whatnot. And one issue with this was the location that was picked. So the location for this sex show, unlike previous years, this time they put it near the airport, which is much closer to a lot of suburbs where there tends to be a lot of white folks. 
So I think the effect of it that, uh, that had happened is it became more accessible for the white communities, but it, it was more the types of people that are window shoppers, visitors to the kink scene. It wasn't the diehards and it wasn't as diverse an audience as we would have gotten had it been centered in Toronto and the city and the urban areas where it had in the past and then where people of color and BIPOC could attend. So I think I'm glad you I'm glad you pointed that out because I was actually wondering why a lot of conferences are located near the airport of all places because usually in my head I'm thinking why is it not in the downtown area or the city area where there's a melting pot of people but yeah I'm glad you pointed that out because it's something I did think about before but never really took too much of a time to think about it beyond me just questioning why it was there. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know why they chose to exactly to do that this last year. I assume it was for cost purposes because the spaces near the airport are, are really large and they, they're probably a lot less expensive than the places that you can host downtown. Plus you have parking, like giant parking lots. So I think when it comes to, to cost, that could be a factor. But then another way of approaching this problem would just be to increase the ticket price by let's say $10 and have sliding scale tickets as well to make, to make it less classist in, in, in certain senses, right? To have other people who want to attend this who maybe can't afford the full ticket price. So there's, I think there's a few things that can be done here in the sex positive communities in order to, to access better intersectionality when it comes to you know, class, race, gender, and so on. <laughs> Just some, some ideas about this because right now it's, a really opportune time to be talking about this, especially with the resurgence of Black Lives Matters. I think people are open to, to hearing these important conversations a lot more than they were in the past. So this kind of segues into another thing that I wanted to ask you, which was how has this Black Lives Matter resurgence impacted your work, if at all? It has a lot because Usually my main focus when it comes to my blogging and my work is the fun aspect of sex because, and I'll get into that part a little bit later so I can go ahead and answer your question now, but usually um, with sex I talk about the orgasms and how to spice up your relationship and the cool tips and tricks behind it all, but lately I have been focusing on how racism affects all parts of life, even the sexuality field and even my relationships and even people's sexuality and people's perceptions of black people and their sexuality. So a lot of my blogs and a lot of the things I've talked on have shifted towards that. And it's even made me reflect in my own self in general, because I'm thinking that why has it taken this instance for me to start talking about it? Not that I necessarily think that just because I'm Black, I have an added responsibility to talk about it because sometimes it does get exhausting having to relive that trauma that Black people experience. But at the same time, it does help me look at myself inward and make me think, okay, well, these are things that I probably should have been talking about a lot sooner than just now. So I'm glad you had a question. 
Well, thank you. You know, I, I've been hearing this from the Black communities, this struggle between feeling the need to participate and, and use their voices to be heard, but at the same time be, being exhausted of having to do all this work. And hopefully this time around, the, the type of allyship that comes forward from especially white people is something to help uplift, amplify those voices and also give them a break once in a while. Yeah, there's definitely a happy medium between allowing us the time and the platform to speak about our experiences candidly, but also helping us create the space for self-care that we need because sometimes looking at these videos that are circulating online about police brutality, it can be extremely daunting. I know that people want to create awareness within our society, but at the same time, when it's an issue that directly affects your community, it definitely puts a damper on your mental health as well. So there's definitely two sides of the coin with that one. You def we definitely want to have our voices centered, but there are some times where we're just, we want some kind of relief from everything that we experience and see. Absolutely, and there's, there's gotta be ways to, that we can do that collectively in a way that doesn't allow white people to overtake the narrative, because I think that there's a potential danger in that too, in white allies being a little too eager to, to use their voices and with the as much you know good intentions as you can have right we've been learning about impact to focus on impact rather than intentions so i think it's there's a there's an important lesson there not to center white voices either so there's got to be i think you mentioned some sort of happy medium where the work can be done to amplify the the leaders in the black community to hear their voices better and the allyship around that has to work in a way that doesn't I'm trying to think of the word here well i guess colonize is the best word yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah colonize is probably the most accurate word and as we know white folks have a pretty fucking rich history of that one so oh yeah <laughs> so yeah this is uh this is part of the project that i'm, I'm undertaking now is just trying to to figure out at least for what this platform can do insofar as the sex positive communities goes to, to see what we can do collectively to center black voices, BIPOC voices, black trans voices, and make it more intersectional in the sex positive communities because it is centered heavily around uh, white experiences, white kink, BDSM. You mentioned the film 365. And mm -hmm. I've gotten to a point where I'm just, I am tired of seeing you know, white heteronormative couples playing out sex positivity on TV. So I can't imagine for BIPOC folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, um, I was just talking to my sister about this the other day. And I mean, I like how these movies are based on fantasy and creativity, but there's also a danger when we make a lot of these mainstream examples, the blueprint for everything that's related to kink and BDSM and sexuality in general because freshman year when I had just heard of Fifty Shades of Grey, my friends and I were really excited because it, it looked like a very interesting movie and it is an interesting series. 
But I was telling people, I'm like, wow, you know, that looks pretty cool, BDF Inc. And then a lot of my friends who are beside me, they, um, they're black friends and they were saying, oh, well, I don't know, that's white people shit. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I mean, <laughs> just because something's maybe out of the norm doesn't necessarily make it white people shit. I know many black people who are in the kink community and who are very famous in it. So that's part of the reason why I enjoy that you're giving people a platform to speak about their experiences because there are a lot of people who aren't aware that black people equally enjoy things like kink and BDSM and polyamory. I mean, it's kind of a newer topic for a lot of people, but it's great that at least some people are starting to realize that it's a very wide range of people who have these aspects that are centered in their life. And it's not just something you see on TV. It's not directed towards one specific type of group. A lot of people are interested in this stuff. So it's great that people can talk about it. And it's great that I can help aid in people's understanding that there are people who look like me who equally enjoy it. Right. And I think you made a good point there is that if Black folks and BIPOC folks are underrepresented in the media when it comes to sex positivity, then it cre creates this idea that it is a white activity. So when your Black friend said that, it, you know, it made sense to them. They're like, I'm not used to seeing people like me represented in this sort of lifestyle. So that's like a white people thing. And yeah, that's, that's part of creating this, this, uh, this idea. I mean, it was the same sort of criticism in the gay liberation movement, right? It was started by trans women of color and it got overtaken by white gay men. And they still tend to be the poster boys for pride and for the entire gay community because they've been centered. And this is the, this is the difficulty with intersectionality is yes, we have you know, different modes of oppression and marginalization, but there's still realms of privilege that operate in, in these areas, right? Like you, you could still be a white man and enjoy the privilege of white and being a cis man and be marginalized for being a homosexual. But then in the gay community, you're taking up all the space and, you know, bisexual people become invisible, lesbians become invisible, transsexual people become invisible, two-spirited people become invisible, and so on as the list goes. So yeah. So I wonder for you, how has COVID impacted your work? COVID has actually done wonders for work, surprisingly. I thought it was going to shut everything down, but the field of sexuality has been thriving amid this pandemic, actually, because people are stuck in their houses and they're wondering how they can enhance their commute, their in intimacy with other people. So part of that means that they're reaching out to me for sex toy suggestions. And that's been one of my favorite things to do to recommend sex toys to people, especially there was this one that I got, um, from a company called O-Touch and it's a clitoral sucker. So it mimics a sucking motion with the sex toy. And it was the first time I had ever tried a toy like that actually. So then when I did it, at first I put it against the palm of my hand just to see how the suction would feel against a different part of my skin so I could mentally prepare myself for it. And even just the palm of my hand, the way that the suction 
corresponded to my skin was amazing. So then when I actually tried it out for real, for real, <laughs> I will say that clitoral suckers are one of those sex toys that you try and you will never want to experience anything else again. So I have definitely been recommending that to people. And there have been more opportunities to do research through my blogging. So um, for example, one blog post that I wrote for Taboo was asking people's opinions and their experiences about how their relationships have been impacted amid COVID. And what I've been finding is that it's almost half and half with some people, their libido has gone all the way down. And some people, their libido has risen to a higher extent because the COVID has been their barrier to reaching other people, especially if they're single. It's been a little different with people who are in committed relationships because they've said that their relationships have been different, as in they've been spending a lot more time together. And to some degree, it's caused more problems because when you naturally spend so much time with someone, eventually there can be confrontation now and then. It is good to have a little bit of separation in between couples, but I've been finding a lot of different research and a lot of data. So with COVID, it's definitely helped me personally. Wow, so two things there. The first is yes to the sex toy. I'm familiar only with the Satisfier and the Womanizer. And at the last Taboo show, I bought my partner the Satisfier and they fucking love it. Ah, oh, yes, awesome. Yeah, the, the Satisfier has become the new favorite and they use it all the damn time. This one's got... Oh, make sure to send me the link when you get the chance because I'm actually not familiar with the Satisfier, but I would love to see it. Yeah, those were, these were the two that originally came out with this exact prospect of like direct clitoral stimulation. And what the Satisfier does is it shoots little air pockets at the clit. And I don't know if the Womanizer does the same thing. We, we haven't tried it. But it's, yeah, it's just like, it's got a little cup that goes exactly over the clit and shoots these little air pockets. And then the actual whole toy also can vibrate. So you get two different kinds of stimulation simultaneously if you want. And they're hugely popular, hugely popular. And then the second thing that you mentioned was the couples during COVID situation. And I've gotten a chance to speak to a bunch of people as well especially there's been polyamorous couples and pods and situations like that where people have been dealing with close quarter relationships and having to communicate a lot more, spend a lot more time together. My partner and I have also been spending a lot more time together during COVID, but for us, it's actually been a really wonderful bonding experience. And I think I attribute that to our ability to communicate really well. But I've also heard of a lot of people who have not had great experiences around their partners and being feeling anywhere from stuffy to situations that could be a lot worse where people were living with abusers, unfortunately. And I've have heard those stories as well here. And it's been an unfortunate situation because both the US and Canada, I think, has failed in being able to support people during COVID with a living wage and housing. And there's other places in the world that have, you know, shown that it can be done. Italy immediately canceled rent and Spain introduced basic universal income. 
and the US and Canada have been tiptoeing around capitalism and um, the situation has not been great. Wow, I actually didn't know that about Italy and Spain. So dang, maybe I should move there. <laughs> it's, um, I'm not gonna lie, it's definitely showing cracks in the American system that have always been there. But I feel like, especially with Americans, we kind of wanna overlook that and we wanna base everything on our American pride, like, oh, America, greatest place on earth to live. And then we notice, ooh, things are not looking too great over here. <laughs> but um, back to what you mentioned about couples, I'm glad you and your partner have great communication because a lot of people do reach out to me and ask about how to communicate with their partners because usually with sex educators we hear the word communicate because that's what people advocate but I mean does communication mean letting your partner know at that moment does it mean sitting them down at a separate occasion and letting them know how you feel does it mean showing them examples from things you've seen in movies or television or art and using it as a visual reference people need to know how to communicate and not just to communicate because it's different for a lot of people some people need to receive and learn information in a different way than others so i'm glad you really pinpointed that absolutely and that's a good point you make we do talk a lot about communication and less often about how good communication operates and you're right there's certainly instances where more communication is not the solution, especially if somebody's angry or fired up. Sometimes it's good to take a minute or an hour or a day to just breathe, process, and then come at it from a calmer perspective, one that's willing to take on the work, I think, to do with your partner or friend or family member and treat, I think, the problem as something that you two can solve together rather than, you know, tossing blame, the old hot potato. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just fortunate to have a partner who is a fantastic communicator and has been able to calm me down and uses techniques like eye gazing and, you know, like yoga techniques to just like sit down, face one another and have a conversation, be honest, allow space to speak, no interruption and it just diffuses a lot of the tension and a lot of that impulse to sort of blame the other person to, to hurt them. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to do that. You regret it later on. So you kind of should try to prevent that while it's happening. Exactly. That's, um, that's actually like me because when I'm angry or upset, I know I personally need a little bit of time to simmer down and think to myself and then talk to my partner and also I know when I'm upset I'll just say anything I don't <laughs> I don't care about who I hurt I'm really petty like that and I know I'm very self-aware in that aspect that I need to just cool off and be to myself and then eventually come together it's actually this relates to a technique that I learned about in one of my classes recently we spoke about the mirroring technique where someone tells their thoughts, how they're feeling, and then the person who they're speaking to either summarizes or they could say verbatim what the person has just said to them without projecting their own thoughts or opinions onto it. And when we did this 
this exercise during class, I was one of the examples that people used. And it was actually really hard for me to do it without projecting my own, I guess, my own spin to it. And um, it just helped me realize how important it is to listen for the sake of understanding and seeing the person and helping them understand the person rather to respond and get your own point across. Absolutely. And I think the Rogerian method, the paraphrasing, is a phenomenal technique I find for, for communication. And I try to use it a lot, the, the paraphrasing method of just, it sounds like what you're saying is, and then I tend to put in my own words, usually abbreviated a little bit, uh, <laughs> because it, it validates for the other person that you were listening, that you understand their feelings, and that you've processed what they said. And then you can go on and, and, and say your piece after that. And another favorite technique that I've learned from communication is addressing the behavior and not the person, right? So you say, when you do blank, insert behavior, it makes me feel blank. And that way you take accountability for your feelings and as opposed to saying things like, you make me feel this way. Well, no. That person doesn't make you feel that way. It's a behavior that maybe they do that triggers a response in you. So that way you kind of separate the two. Uh, and these two methods together, I think, are, are some of my most used methods when I teach workshops on communication and when I communicate myself. Paraphrasing and, yeah, uh, you know, analysis of, of behavior and separating that from the person and um, a statement about feelings. So the last thing I like to do in this podcast is I ask my guests if they have a sexy, wild, fun, outrageous story that they'd like to share. Which one? Oh my gosh. Okay. Give me, that's give always me the answer. <laughs> which one? Which one? I love that. That's always the answer and never like, Oh no, I don't have anything. Yeah. You pick whatever you think is going to, going to sound good. May I share two? You may share two. So two All stories. Right. All right. I'm ready. First story. This is the story where I got peed on for the first time. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, people have already had this weird stigma against fluids, especially pee. But in my head, I'm thinking, well, I'm one of those people who don't necessarily not do things. I'm always, I consider myself a sexual opportunist. So I don't necessarily say no to anything. Everything is on the table unless I'm thinking, okay, I definitely don't want to do that. But for the most part, I would consider doing almost anything. So one day my partner and I were drinking, we had a wine night and all of a sudden I looked at him and I said, you know what, you should pee on me. And then he said, okay. <laughs> so then we head to the shower and I get in the shower and I'm just laying there naked and then all of a sudden he starts peeing on me and it was actually an invigorating experience even though it may kind of seem disgusting but it was just really cool and sexy to have all of your inhibitions let go and just experiencing something that people think is dirty and then <laughs> it's always fun to share fluids all kinds of fluids with partners, right? Yes. And then another story is when I went to a surprise orgy party 
and I wasn't aware that it was an orgy party at first. I actually thought it was just a regular after party after a sex expo. What was it, it your was birthday? The, <laughs> Surprise, <laughs> <the> birthday. <laughs> it was actually um, an after party for the AVN Expo, the Adult Video uh, Network yeah. Expo that happens in Vegas. And it was my first time going, so I was asking people around. I was like, so what are the after parties like? I want to get to know people. I want to have a fun time because it was also my first time in Vegas ever. And you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but I'm about to tell you but what it never, happened. But it never does, actually. Yeah, it never does. So then um, when I went to this party, it was a really nice penthouse suite at some hotel. And it was nice. People were having drinks, getting to know each other, dancing. And then suddenly the host of the party, he clears the dance floor and he's like, everyone gather to the middle. So everyone gathered to the middle. And he grabs, um, I think it was his wife or, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was his wife who he grabbed. But I'll just say, I'll just give a name, um, Sally. <laughs> so he grabbed <laughs> Sally and pulled her to the middle and then did this BDSM demo and started spanking her and slapping her ass. And I was like, oh, you know, this is cool because I had seen people do kinky demos before. So it, it meant nothing to me really. But then all of a sudden, Sally bends down on her knees and starts sucking his dick. And then I was like, oh, wow, okay. This really just got crazy, but I like the way this is going. <laughs> so then she's sucking his dick some more. And then all of a sudden he gets behind her and he starts eating her ass. And I'm like, wow, like they're really doing this in the middle of the dance floor, but I'm all for it. Okay. You know, go, go y'all. I'm hyping them up. Go team. <laughs> and then all of a sudden another person joins in and it becomes a threesome. And I'm like, Ooh, okay. This is really interesting. Where in the world? <laughs> I'm like looking around the room. I'm like, does everyone see what's going on? Like they're acting like this is a, just the completely regular thing. And, Maybe it was regular. I don't know. It was a surprise to me. So there were three people in the middle of the dance floor just sucking, licking, rubbing everything. And then eventually more people join in and it's like one by one until it turns into a big orgy of, I don't know, maybe 10 to 12 people, if I remember correctly. But they were having a good time. Just dicks, sucking dicks, eating <laughs> pussies. Everybody was entangled into each other. It was amazing watching all those people just wrapped up in their pleasure and doing their own thing. There was squirting, uh, <laughs> ejaculate, everything. It was the most amazing thing I had ever seen in my life. So you, you just thought you were going to a regular ass party and then people start fucking. Yes, a regular ass party is what I thought it was. Just drinking and getting to know each other. And then next thing I know, everyone's fucking in the middle of the dance floor. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> so Amazing. Yeah, that was my first surprise orgy experience. All right. Well, before I let you go, then this is your chance to plug away all of the things. Where can people find you? All your social media, everything shamelessly plug what you want. <laughs> uh, well, if anyone wants to find me, they can find me on Instagram and Twitter. My at name is the same for both, Tati underscore K underscore King. That is T-A-T-Y underscore K underscore K-I-N-G. And there I usually repost all of my blogs for different publications. And 
tweet a bunch of stuff that's happening in my life, whether it's speaking at a sex conference or just tweeting about regular inhibited sexual thoughts, periods thing. But yeah, just find me on Instagram or Twitter at Tati underscore K underscore King. Awesome. Tatiana, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. I'm really happy to be on here. <laughs> awesome. You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty to stimulate your thinking.